0: From Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries, this is the Gary Talks About God Podcast. All right, take your Bibles. John chapter 10 will be in verse 22 in just a moment. Though it is not a well-known date in history, it really kind of all began on November 3rd, 1929. And it began as, as nothing more than a cartoon in a newspaper and, and not a cartoon like we think of when we think of, uh, of Peanuts or my favorite Calvin and Hobbes or not, not that type of cartoon, but just just a, a, a cartoon panel, right, drawn in it and, and just a picture in it. Now, it's not really the picture that you will immediately recognize or be familiar with, but it's, it was the heading above the picture. And it was penned by a gentleman by the name of Robert Ripley. So Ripley's Believe It or Not started as a little cartoon in a, in a newspaper in 1929. Now, it, is, it was not anywhere near as sensational as we think of with Ripley's Believe It or Not now. And in fact, it was pretty uh, uh, bland, to be perfectly honest with you, because November 3rd, 1929, his first cartoon, first panel, the first Ripley's Believe It or Not, was America Has No Official National Anthem, which in 1929 was actually true. Even though the Star-Spangled Banner was written in 1814 and people knew it and sung it, it was not until 1931 that Congress passed a law making it the official U.S. National Anthem. In part because on November third, nineteen twenty nine there was a Ripley's believe it or not, that America did not have a national anthem now, through the years he's become or what is the Ripleys legacy has become a lot more sensational <laughs> than than that, but it started out with a panel, a cartoon that was a easily verified truth, right. People could go and find out. I mean, the, the common person may not have known, but they could have contacted their uh, legislature, uh, congressman or, or senator, and said, hey, do we have a national anthem? And I would have found out, no, that you do not. When it comes to John chapter 10, the second part, it, it's a believe it or not moment for the audience and for the people who Jesus is talking to. Jesus has been preaching, teaching, healing people of the day, and and you have the leaders come in and, and look at Jesus and say, hey, prove who you are. You're saying all this stuff, but we don't know whether to believe it or not. Can you prove to us that you are who you say you are? Now, as you start to go through these verses and you read these verses, that what you come to understand very quickly is it really isn't about belief, but it's about unbelief. Just like in that cartoon panel, there was, it was an easy way to verify whether or not that was true. What Jesus has been doing, His preaching, His teaching, His healing, are easily verified statements that back up the claim that He is who he says he is. But despite all of that, the evidence is right there in front of them, and it is a refusal for them to believe. They will not believe. It is more about their unbelief than about belief. This is what God's Word says, beginning in verse 22 and going to the end of the chapter. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. As we start our study on this, this section of John 10, we need to answer both a textual question and we need to note the historical context. The textual question centers around verse 22. Verse 22 says, It is time they are at the Feast of Dedica- Dedication. So the textual question, and I I bring this up just because when things are brought up that you may be exposed to and and read about, I, I want to make those known to you, so if you hear it later, you won't be caught off guard. In that verse, verse 22, where it says, at that time the Feast of Dedication took place, the question is, is that a comment looking back so that everything that happened in John 10, verse 1 through 21, occurred at the Feast of Dedication? Or is it a marker that says everything after verse 22 occurs at the Feast of Dedication? Now, when you read the text, and remember, I always have to to remind you of this and, and remind myself too, the chapters and the verses are not divinely inspired. They are convenient markers to help us find and locate Scripture. But they are not divinely inspired. If you remove... In my Bible, chapter 10, number 10 is a little bit bigger to let me know that a chapter is there. If you remove that and you just read the end of John 9 to John 10, 1, there is no seam. The audience does not change. Jesus continues to talk. At the same time, when you remove verse 22 and 23 and we would we'll just be reading it's a very logical progression as well. So it, it makes us go, all right, is he looking backwards or is he looking forward? And I think the answer is he's looking forward, right? And, and this is what I think is, is, is happening here. When you go from John 9 to John 10, the audience does not change. Jesus is still at the Feast of, uh, Feast of Tabernacles. In John 10, the audience has changed. He is now at the Feast of Dedication. In that time, three months has elapsed. At the same time, what John does is he continues the literary theme of Jesus being the Good Shepherd. It's amazing what someone can do under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when they write. It's not really an issue, but I want you to know if you come across that, that's what they're talking about. But I don't see a division. We have flown right in, and John is, without breaking stride, Say, yeah, three months is gone, he's at the Feast of Dedication, However, the topic of conversation is still the same. He's still having the same conversations. You know, it's not like Jesus has ever told us more than once the same thing. You know, I'll let you all decide whether you're stubborn enough to need to hear something once or twice or three times. So that's the textual issue. Now, the historical context is, is we got to talk about the Feast of Dedication. Now, normally I would tell you, hey, turn to Exodus or Leviticus and let's look at the feast, right? I can't do that. You know why? The Feast of Dedication is not in Exodus or Leviticus. It, it's, it's not there. This is the only place where the Feast of Dedication is mentioned. It is not a feast that was prescribed by God in the Old Testament law. It is a feast that was institute, instituted by Israel in between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as soon as I tell you, we know it today by Hanukkah, you are familiar with that feast. It's the Feast of Dedication, commonly referred to today as Hanukkah. And here's the background with it. Because Hanukkah is about cleansing and the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem. What happened was a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes, whose name means God manifest, all right? that's, That's what he called himself, invades Jerusalem in 167 B.C., And for three years, he terrorizes Jerusalem and the Jews to such a great extent that the brutality he inflicted on the Jews, I'm not even going to repeat to you this morning from the pulpit. It was just atrocious. If you ever want to know how wicked men can be, read what he did to the Jewish population, and and you will see that men have wicked hearts. And as he is doing this, he, he's, he's, he's literally trying to erase the Jewish people. Not the first time, won't be the last, he won't succeed. Anybody who comes later will not succeed. But one of the ways he is doing this is he is going to tear down worship. And what he does in, in the, is, is profane the temple to a level that was unheard of. He takes a pig probably the most unclean animal in all of Old Old Testament law, leads that pig through the temple up to the altar and sacrifices that pig on the altar and then has the priest eat the flesh of the pig. I know we're Southern, and we love a pig picking like nobody else. We had pork roast last night, and it was good. Jews didn't eat pigs. Jews didn't have anything to do with them. They were not to be in the temple. They were not to be touched. They were not to be they, they were an unclean animal. And this unclean animal was slaughtered on the altar. The filing, the altar, the temple, and then the priest. And this continues to happen. And what was so bad about it is that some of the religious leaders that day helped contribute to it. They were corrupt. They did not act as shepherds for the people and stand in the gap between what Antiochus was doing and what God had called them to do. They did not protect the sheep. And it was not until a man by the name of Judas Maccabees rise and comes in, who his nickname was the Hammer... I mean, if you're going to lead an army, I mean, what a a great name. The hammer comes in, and he starts a war against the Syrians, and and also against his brothers and sisters, Jews, who who were on the side of the Assyrians. And he drove them out in 164 BC, recaptures the temple, and he goes in and he dedicates the temple back to the Lord. And one of the prescriptions in temple worship was at night, they were supposed to light the menorah, light the candlestick so that it would burn through the night. Well, when he did that, he found the oil that was consecrated to do this. There was enough oil for one night. But amazingly enough, or miraculously enough, at the rededication of God's temple, the oil lasted for eight days, long enough for them to press more oil, to have that oil dedicated, so that they would have more oil. So today, when you see a menorah, that is what it is celebrating. Now, the difference between the menorahs you see today is there's one center candle and four on the side. The lampstand in the temple had one center candle and three on the side for a total of seven. Today's menorah has nine. But it's a celebration of, of the rededication of the temple. And so you have an eight-day celebration. And so you have this historical context going on where Jesus is continuing what? The shepherd theme. I'm not like the false shepherds. I'm not like the hired shepherds, right? Who flee at the time of danger. Remember what he said? The hired hand flees at the time of danger. And now we're at the feast of dedication where the priest of God, what did they do? They fled in the face of danger. And Jesus is telling them once again, hey, even though this is not a feast prescribed by God, this is a feast where I ultimately fulfill. Because once again, I am the good shepherd. And so as we walk through this text this morning, two things to notice. One is Jesus reveals the reason for their unbelief. Because in the background, that's the question why did the shepherds fall? Why did they fail? They would have read at the Feast of Dedication Ezekiel 34, and you remember us reading that passage last week where God's saying, guys, you're not taking care of the flock. You're not protecting them. You're not doing what you're supposed to, so I'm going to step in, and I'm going to lead my flock. And what could be a better visual representation of the shepherds not taking care of the flock than the desecration of the temple? Than the people, uh, uh, the Jews gathering around in Jerusalem, remembering, being told the history, and what happened, and being told the story of the hammer coming in, and re the temple to God like it was supposed to be. And so when Jesus here then is talking to them, it is not only A a indictment of previous leaders. Jesus is now saying, basically, hey guys, you're doing the same thing that the other priests and leaders did years ago where you're not protecting and guiding the flock. You are as much as false shepherds as those who sided with Antiochus Epiphanes when he came into Jerusalem. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how brutal you are. It doesn't matter that he was exponentially harsher and, and brutal and defiling the temple, you're defiling it as well because you're not leading the people to God. You, you know, this is one of those things, well, well, yeah, you may be better than him, but you're still not right. <laughs> That's what Jesus is telling them. And he says, so in this, because you're not doing it, I have come, I am the good shepherd, and I am going to lead them because you're not. You're not doing that. And John gives us a little hint right in the second part of verse 22, John throws in this little this little time marker, right? It is winter. Yes, it was, but we know enough about John that John uses day, night, light, darkness to symbolize something else. It's winter. The spiritual spiritual condition of the people could be described as winter. They have cold hearts. Their hearts are bleak. They are hardened to the truth of who Jesus is, which is why in verse 24 they ask the question, hey, tell us plainly. We want to know, are you the Messiah? And the way that they actually ask the question is intriguing. It, it's, it's really one of those... It's a backhanded question. Tell us plainly, because we have it translated here. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Really it is, how long are you going to plague us? It's accusatory. How long are you going to... to, to bother us? How long are you not going to be fair with us? How long are you going to continue just to toy with us? Can you please just tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And Jesus looks at them, right? And what does he say to them? He says, I told you. And you do not believe. He says, I I told you. Now, when we read that, our first thought is, when did Jesus tell them, right? That makes sense. Jesus says, I told you. So we go, Where? And as long as we look for a sentence where Jesus says, I am the Messiah, you will not find that in Scripture. It's not there. However, when you look at what has happened, as Jesus has said, look, I have told you since the very beginning... Since I have come on the scene, I have told you. In fact, even before you know, I made my public entrance, John the Baptist says, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Even John the Baptist recognized, He witnessed to me. The Scriptures witness to me. God the Father witnesses to me. That's how I told you. How about all the times Jesus has said in the midst of everybody, I am the bread of life. How about I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. That's all the times I told you. How about the emphatic I am statement that that we see in, in John 8 where he says, before Abraham was, I am. How about that? How about all the miracles? How about the fact that I just cured a man who was born blind? And all the ridiculous questions you kept asking that man. Are you sure you were born blind? How do you know you were born blind? Let's call his parents. Let's call his neighbors. Are you sure this is the man who was born blind? What what more do you want? I mean, the man even looked at you and said, look, I don't know who this guy is, but this is the one thing that I do. Though I was blind, now I see. And no one since the beginning of time has cured a man born blind. You tell me where he came from. How about the man that was at the pool and he was crippled? And I looked at him and I said, get up and walk. And he arose. He got up and he took his mat and walked. And and what was their response? Why are you carrying your mat? It wasn't, how are you walking? It was, you're carrying the mat on on the Sabbath and we have instituted a law that says you can't carry the mat on the Sabbath. Wouldn't you like to know if the next sentence or the next part of that was the guy takes his rolled up mat and smacks him upside the head and goes, yeah, but I can walk. (laughs) Right? So Jesus looks at him and says, what, what more do you want me to do? I have done all this. I have said all this, and, and you do not believe. And he tells them why. He says, you don't believe in verse 26 and verse 27. says, you don't believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. So he looks at them and says, look, you, you can't hear my voice because of unbelief. That's why. That's why you're asking me this question again. That's why you want me to do something else, because you don't believe. And what is the whole purpose of John's gospel? Right. This is where we started. Before we did, John 1, we went all the way back to John 20. Because we said we cannot understand John and what is happening and all the stories that John is weaving together unless we understand John 20, where John says, look, I write all this that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. They don't believe. They refuse to believe. Now, for a Baptist this is a hard passage of scripture for us, right? I mean, I mean it, it it just is. Not not from the words uh or, or or the teaching necessarily. It's it's hard because we want people to believe, right? We, we want everybody to believe in Christ. We want everybody to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. And man, we'll we'll, we'll cling to that, right? And do you know how we do it? We do it with probably a sentence that we, and I'm including myself in that, we have all made as a Baptist. You ready for the sentence? This is it. Well, we just don't know his or her heart. Right? Anybody guilty of that? Why? Because we want that person to believe. And while, yes, it is absolutely a true statement, I cannot look into somebody's soul just like you can't and see the salvation. You know, if we if we could, it, we just can't do it. You know, there's there's nothing that we can look in and say, all right, there's the marker. There's the mark. They got the super secret Christian mark. Yep. Yeah, all right, good. Be easy if it was, right? We can't do that. At the same time, Scripture has given us a bunch of indicators to look to that can testify to a person's heart. And verse 27 is one. The sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And remember what we said last week? Sheep are sheep, not because they follow the Savior. Sheep are sheep because they belong to the Savior. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And what is really interesting about that verse is when he says that, It says, they hear my voice, I know them, right? It's not, they know my voice. Did you you notice that? My sheep hear my voice, it's not, and they know me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And when when you read, they follow me, it is in the present tense, indicating a continual following. Jesus' sheep always follow his voice. When? When do they follow? When they hear His voice. Right now. When do the sheep follow tomorrow? Right now. When do the sheep follow in a week when they hear Jesus' voice? Right then, when He speaks. They follow. As a sheep, there is never a time in our lives where we don't follow the voice of the shepherd. We hear His voice and we follow. In ten years, as a believer... Jesus, you hear his, the voice of the shepherd, and you follow. And, and, and really, it's not until the sheep get to the finish line, right? It, it's not until they cross the finish line that we know, yes, and we can say they belong to Christ. I mean, continuing following demonstrates endurance of the faith, And as sheep, we're called to endure. We're called to run the race with endurance. It's not a sprint. You've heard me use this analogy, ad nauseum. I mean, you've heard it enough. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And we've got to have the endurance. Revelation 14, 12. Here is a call for endurance of the saints. You know what the next part is? Those who keep the commandments of God. How do they keep the commandments of God? Because they hear the voice of Jesus, they hear the voice of the shepherd, and they follow the shepherd. And we keep following, and we keep following, and we keep following. And yes, the testimony of our faith is written every day during our lives as we obey. At the same time, our faith is confirmed at our death. When we get to the very end, and someone can look back and say, yes, They followed the shepherd every day. So that when we die at our death, in verse 28, it is not a loss to us. We do not perish. But instead, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. We have eternal life in him. He gives it to us. We do not perish. And he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. You know what I thought of when when I, I was... When studying and and writing the message, we've all seen it, right? We've all seen a movie where someone has gone over the cliff, right? And there's that one person on top of the cliff who is reaching down, just reach, just, you you know, just, come on, give me your hand. In the movies where the person doesn't make it back up on the ledge, but in the movies where the person slides over the ledge, who lets go? Which one is not strong enough? Is it the person on top or is it the person dangling? Really? Because I think it's the person dangling. I think it's always the person on the bottom. Because you always see that person bottom, that hand do what? Lose the grip. Right? Isn't it wonderful to know that our salvation is not based on whether or not we hold on to the hand of Jesus? Because if it was, you know what would happen? It'd be gone. But instead, we are told that He has us and no one will snatch us out of His hand. So, again, let's go to that because you know I'm very visual in my thinking, right? Jesus is sitting there and He's got us by the hand. He's going to lead us into heaven. And think about it people are trying, the world is trying to grab your legs and pull you down. Jesus is like, no, you're mine. I got you. You're not going anywhere. Satan and his demons and dominions are trying to grab you and pull you down, and Jesus is going, he's in my hand, he's not going with you. There is nobody that is going to pull us out of Jesus' hand, including ourselves. He's got us. And when we get to the end of our life and at our death, when our faith is confirmed, because we have followed the voice of the shepherd every single day, he has led us and guided us. He's going to take us by the hand and he is going to lead us to heaven to be with him for all eternity. We will not be lost. And Jesus is sitting there telling them, look, you want an answer. Here's my answer. Here's my answer and he goes and, and do you know why this is true? He continues. He's, he's still answering it to him. He tells him, this is true because in verse 30, my father who has given them to me, again, we're his sheep because we're given to him. He's not going to let us go. He's not going to let anyone snatch us anybody snatch us out of his hand. And he says, look this, is, this happening is because I and the Father am one. Yes, I am the Messiah. And look at their reaction. The reaction tells you everything that they want you want to know. They pick up stones to stone him. What's it tell us? It tells us they understood what he was saying. Then he just tell them plainly, plainly enough that they understood. And instead of believing, they don't like it and they reject reject the truth. They are stuck in their unbelief. So Jesus looks at them and, and confronts them and says, Hey, are, are, are you going to stone me? For my good works? Are are you going to stone me after all the good works that I have done? Because after all the works that I work are from the Father. He is the one who sent me. So you're you're going to, to stone me for my works? And they say, no, we're not going to stone you for that. We're going to stone you because you're blaspheming. Because you say that you are the Son of God. And this is why we read Psalm 82. Right? Because Jesus makes the same argument that is made in the psalm. And, and, and Jesus says, look, I, I'm here. I'm here now to set you free. I've told you this. I just told you at the Feast of, of Tabernacles that, you know, if you know me, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. yet they won't believe the truth because they are enslaved to their sins and they refuse. They would rather die in their lives than be set free. And you know what? This still happens today. You still confront people today with who Jesus is and tell them that he has come to set you free he has come to give you life and give it to you more abundantly. He has come to free you from what enslaves you and to give you a life and not just here and now, but in the world to come. And they will not believe. They will come up with every kind of answer. Well, well, well Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Well, Jesus was a myth. Well, he's just a, a legend or, or this, the Jesus that we know isn't the Jesus of, of, of the Bible. Jesus didn't speak about this sin or that word wasn't in the Bible until this year and that. And they will come up with all these answers. And you can look at them and go, if I can answer that for you today, will you believe? And most of the time, they'll look at you and say, what? No. They just refuse to believe. Despite everything that is in front of them, they refuse to believe. Why? They're not His sheep. And they will not follow the shepherd. At the same time, Jesus, even though he's talking to them and they won't believe, he reveals to them the solution to unbelief. Jesus reveals the solution to unbelief. Now, when Jesus makes the statement, I am the Father, I'm one, it's, it's not a, a, a throw-off statement. He is actually making an argument to the leaders. And one of the ways that he makes this argument when he says, I am the Father, I'm, I'm one, the word one is, is really interesting in just about every other language but English, nouns are classified either masculine, feminine, or neuter, right? You do this a lot of times, and you don't even know that you do it. Because when we talk about boats, right, how do we refer to boats? She. Do you know why? The, the, the quick answer is because from the Latin, the word na- navus is, is feminine. And you might go, well, why is a boat feminine? There is no rhyme or reason. Don't try to understand. I, I did. That was one. That the first mistake that I made when we were in Romania and, and learning Romanian was trying to understand why some nouns were feminine and some were masculine. And I was trying to, you know, because if I understood the system, I could get the nouns right, and, and my language teacher, I think, finally just said, Gary, <laughs> no, just learn the word. There is no rhyme or reason. Yet it, it carries over, and, 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 and we, we do that today. So we would expect then that the word one to be masculine, but it's not. It's it's neuter. It's really Jesus and I or or God, uh, the Father and I are one thing. Now, don't let that throw you. Okay? Because what Jesus is telling them that he is not the Father. Right? Jesus is, is, is not the Father. Yet, Jesus and the Father have the same essence. They are unique members of the Godhead, unique members of the Trinity with their own personhood. Yet they are one in essence. Not only are they one in essence, but they are one in purpose and will. Right? What the Father wants, Jesus wants. What Jesus wants, the Father wants. And Jesus says, whatever he does, he does in absolute, complete unity with the Father. The works that he performs, complete unity with the Father. His teachings, complete unity with the Father. So whenever and whatever Jesus does, teaches, or acts, he is acting in unity of purpose and will with the Father. Which also then means what? That he has the authority to carry out the will and the purpose of the Father. So since he and the Father are one, whatever he speaks, he speaks with authority. And as the religious leaders, you should recognize this, believe it, and follow, because I don't speak as one of you. I speak as the Father, because I and the Father are one. I have the authority to speak. And again, they're not happy, right? We keep thinking, surely, right? Surely they'll believe, verse 33, again they're not happy the Jews it's not good not for good work that we're going to stone you I love that right I know I find humor in really silly places right they picked up stones to stone them and they go no we're not going to stone you because of your good works we're going to stone you because of the blasphemy oh okay that makes it better right he goes how how am I blaspheming and again Psalm 82 we're back there again Psalm 82, when we read that psalm and we talked about it, and you look at it, God is chastising His people. He is chastising the leaders who were supposed to be protecting the sheep, leading the people. And even in their rebellion in verse 6, He says, You are gods, sons of the Most, Most High. Even though you are in rebellion to God, He still calls you sons of God. So why was that not considered blasphemy? See what he did? He goes, you think you understand the Scripture? All right, you go quote me for this. Let me tell you what the Scripture says. How is that not blasphemy? So that when when I come and say that I am the Son of God, because unlike the people in Psalm 82, I'm actually doing the works and the will of God, and I'm not in rebellion, doesn't it make much more sense then that I am actually the Son of God? That that I am the one who has been sent. This is a how much more moment Jesus, right? We see that in Hebrews a lot of times, those words, how much more then is Jesus. This is basically what Jesus is doing. He goes, if they were the sons of God in rebellion, how much more then am I the son of God? That's the one who was sent by the Father in perfect unity with the Father in the same essence as the Father, accomplishing the same will as the Father. How much more then am I not the one true son of God? And in making that statement, Jesus is saying, I'm not stating or or making myself God. I am simply stating who I am. For you to be the sons of God, you had to have God say it and declare it. I am just stating who I am. How much greater am I as the son of God than of you? Now, this is where it gets interesting. This is where I think Jesus is Baptist. That was supposed to be a joke, sorry. <laughs> because you would think at this point, you would think at this point, Jesus would just dismiss them, right? We've all been in those arguments, those conversations where we finally just reach the point of like, okay, my head hurts. I'm, I'm just, it's a brick wall. I'm done. Jesus has already said you're not my sheep, Right? But what does Jesus say to him in verse 37? What does he say? If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. Then in verse 38, he issues an invitation to the same people. Right? Verse 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What does Jesus just do? He issues an invitation. Does he not? He says, If you don't want to believe my words, look at what I've done. Look at everything I've done and ask yourself, who else could do these works? And if you believe the works, then the next logical step is to believe the one who sent me. And the next logical step then is to believe that I am who I said I am. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus issues that appeal to them, even though they continue to not believe. Right? Because again, it says they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. <laughs> even then, even then they still refuse to believe. And you're going, what more do you want? What more up to these 10 verses in John could Jesus have done? I mean, and pretty soon they're seeing him raised from the dead. But they refuse to Believe. And then, just kind of as a footnote, that has, I think, a greater theological significance than we realize, and we'll come to that in just a minute. It says that Jesus moves to the other side of the Jordan where John had been baptizing, and there he remained. When, John, when Jesus leaves in John 10, right there, and he goes to the other side of the Jordan, his public ministry to the Jews ceases. There's no more discourses, there's no more teaching in the temple. Yet his, his, his ministry doesn't, because we're told that many people there believed in him. Isn't that amazing? Look, look at the contrast. John chapter 10, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders saying, Look, here I am. This is what I've done. You know me. You've heard me. You've seen my works. You've seen my teaching. Look, evaluate me. And they refused to believe. Then on the other side of the Jordan, many came to him and said, John didn't do a sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And they believed, they believed John's testimony where the religious leaders wouldn't believe the testimony of Jesus standing right in front of them. you just get to a point and, and go, why? They just, they, they, they just won't believe. But the Baptist in us, the Baptist in Jesus keeps preaching the gospel. And, and, and we keep doing it because we want people to hear his voice. Because we don't know who the sheep are. And so I want to end with this, both on a personal and then on a national level. When Jesus moves from Jerusalem to the Jordan, it is more than just a geographical move, it is a theological move. The, the people Jesus preached to, taught to, healed, did the works, pointed, you know, pointed them to Scripture and, and they wouldn't hear, but yet Jesus continued to say, believe in me, believe the works. Over and over and over, Jesus calls them to believe. And the reason he calls them to believe is one, we know that Jesus desires people to be saved. And at the same time, though, Jesus knows who his sheep is. Remember, we're not God. We don't know. He knows who his sheep are. We don't. And someone not hearing his voice the first time does not preclude them from being his sheep. They may hear his voice and follow later. I imagine many of us here did not follow Jesus the first time, we heard about him. Yet the day that he called our name, the day that we heard his voice, we did. And so we continue to preach Jesus. We continue to put the gospel out there. Because as we know and as Jesus has told us, the call of salvation is not a call for tomorrow, it's a call for today. Right? Behold, now, today, today is the day of salvation. When you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts But listen to the shepherd as he calls you and follow and be obedient. That's the personal application, but there's a national application as well. Because it's not just about a missed opportunity when you don't follow the shepherd. It's about judgment. It's about judgment. And one of the questions that I have really pondered and thought on in the past couple of years, and I think I've talked to a few of you out here about that, I've asked the question that, that has gone something like this. Would there ever become a time in the nation when not only are you working against Satan and, and, and worldly religions and passions but would there ever become a time in the nation, a time in the U.S. when it almost feels like you're working against God too because He has revealed or, 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 or He has retracted or lifted some of His presence in the United States through the reduction of the work of the Holy Spirit in our nation? Does that make sense? Not that Jesus is, God is actively working against us, but just his, his hand of restraint has been lifted. And so it feels like not only are you working against evil, that God has now backed off, so you're now working against God as well. When, when you come to this verse and you realize that after this, Jesus is not with his people. Jesus isn't with the nation of Israel. Preaching to them, calling the lost sheep of Israel to come and believe. It looks like judgment. You go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, when Jesus is walking through the churches and he walks through the church of Ephesus and he warns them of judgment, where he says to them, I will remove your lampstand. And the removal of the lampstand is the removal of his presence from the church as a means of judgment. What happens? when the lampstand is removed. And I found this quote that when I read that, I thought, that's what I've been saying for two years. But the quote is 20 years old. And it's in the form of a question. Quote, can a nation or a city become so utterly godless, so utterly pagan, and thoroughgoing in its repudiation of the gospel, that it experiences a dim, dim, diminution of God's activity. <laughs> yeah? Yes? Are we there? You have a hard time convincing me we're not. Yet, here is the beautiful truth. The answer for both, both individual and national, are the same. Repent, for today is the day of salvation. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbank mbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.